seated. I invite you to take a Bible now, if you will, and turn to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, Luke chapter 18. We're going to look at a parable uh, this morning in verses 9 through 14 of Luke 18. Sometimes called the parable of the two men who went up to the temple to pray. Also called the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. Hear God's word. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to your word. We don't understand it naturally in ourselves. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray you nourish us. You told us we don't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So feed our hungry souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that statement, that statement reveals how helpless we are since we have nothing to do with our own birth. I want to tell you about two different men in church history who experienced the new birth. And they... They influence you and me today more so than than you may realize. The first was named Augustine. Some people call him Augustine. He was converted to Christ in A.D. 386. The other man I'd like to tell you about briefly was C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis, who became a Christian in 1931. Both became believers after long struggles with unbelief. But the way they came to faith was vastly different. And let me tell you. Let me tell you first about Augustine. For this single young man, the idol in his life that kept him from Christ was extramarital sex. That's what it was. He had given way to his passions for the last 16 years. He had left home when he was 16. He had a godly mother named Monica who never ceased to pray for him. Now he is 32 years old. In his own words, he said, I began to search for a means of gaining the strength I needed to enjoy you, O Lord. But I could not find this means until I embraced the mediator between God and man, who is Jesus Christ. And then came one of the most important days in church history. It was in late August of 386. Augustine was, as I mentioned, 32 years old, or close to it. He was with his best friend, a man named Olypius, 
And together they were talking about the remarkable life of godliness and sacrifice of an Egyptian monk named Antony. And Augustine was bothered by his own addiction to lust when it seemed as though others were free to obey Christ in that area. He writes, There was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I now found myself driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt that fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. So he goes into this garden by himself, by this house where he's living, and he's just torn. He's having this inward battle. He said, I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic. I was overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting God's will and entering into God's covenant. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fist. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. And during this time, he began to see more clearly the work of Christ and what it meant to have faith in him. And then he said, I flung myself beneath a fig tree. And I began to weep, streams from my eyes. All at once, I heard the sing-song voice of a child at a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain, Take it and read it. Take it and read it. So I hurried back to the place where Olypius was sitting. I seized the book of Paul's epistles, which was Romans, and I opened it. And in silence, I read the first passage on which my eyes fell, which was chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, which say, Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. He closed it at that point. He said, I had no wish to read more, and I did not need to read any more. For in an instant, he wrote, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. He was born again. And he never turned back the rest of his life to his old ways. The wind blows where it wishes. So in this case, through the voice of a child in a garden. C.S. Lewis since 1925, had been a fellow at Magdalen College at Oxford. He was a tutor in English language and literature. He's best known today probably for the Chronicles of Narnia. But it was on an evening in 1931, and he had been talking with his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Lord of the Rings, and with Hugo Dyson. And in retrospect, we can say that God was putting things into place leading up to what would happen the very next day. Unlike Augustine, C.S. Lewis's conversion was completely unemotional and without struggle. It happened to him, and if you read C.S. Lewis, and I know many of you do, it happened to him while he was riding a bus to a zoo. Here's what he wrote. <clears throat> I know very well when but hardly how the final step was taken. I was driven into Whipsnade Zoo one sunny morning. When, listen to this. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. 
And yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. He said emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. And he made this comparison. He said it was more like when a man, after long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. That's how he described his conversion. Let's look at two other men here in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. The point is very similar, though their, their experiences are different. We have the, the parable, the story that Jesus told of two men who go up to the temple to pray. Now the outcome and the main point, like most parables, is found at the end, where it says, I tell, verse 14, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. This is a parable about what it means to be justified with God. But he tells the parable in this context. Verse 9 tells us, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. He did not tell it about people who looked down on others. He did not tell it about people who were self-sufficient in their own righteousness. He told it to them. And he's probably telling it to some of us right now as well. Let's look at the two characters briefly. First, the Pharisee. In verse 10, we've been conditioned to see the Pharisees as evil uh, and as sinister. And the eyes, um, though, of good and people, good and decent people in Jesus' day, uh, the Pharisees were respected. They were viewed as religious and morally successful people. They were the most highly regarded of the groups of the Jewish faith, Judaism. To begin with, there were not very many of them. Uh, there could be no more than 3,000 at any one time. They were not a political group, but they had great political power because they were held in such high esteem. So their influence, their opinions mattered to other people. Their chief concern was the external obedience of God's law in its, in its most minute form. Nicodemus, who came to faith, was a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee before his conversion. So this man could stand in the temple and honestly pray, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, evildoers, adulterers. I tithe. I fast twice a week. We must assume that what he was praying was true, that he's not making this up, that he was a very religious man. In fact, when he says he fasted twice a week, that shows great zeal. The Old Testament only called for one fast a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But in this man's commitment, in his devotion to his religion, he goes beyond that. So twice a week, Monday, Thursday, he denied himself food for spiritual purposes so that he could devote himself to prayer. He tithed. He gave tithes of all he took in. At least a tenth of all of his income went for gifts to the work of the Lord. He was probably more than a tither. He was willing to lower his standard of living for his commitment to his religion. So I don't think we should doubt whether this man is being honest and truthful and sincere in his prayer. And he would have been respected by the other man in the room, the tax collector. The tax collector, we meet in verse 10. 
Now, if you, we've kind of been conditioned to see them as good guys, but if we think they were good-natured chums, they weren't. Uh, Tax collection was very different in that day. It's not like our system today. Rome would come in, and since they had all the power, they would sell the right to tax a certain geographical area, a certain province. They would sell that to the highest bidder. And then Rome would say, this is how much we want out of this province. Anything you get above and beyond that is yours to keep. So extortion was built into the system. Every day, injustice was part of this man's job. So he made his living from taking what rightfully belonged to others. He was a traitor all day long. And so because of that, he was despised by his own people. Now, let's compare the two. If both had been running for public office, you'd want the sign of the Pharisee in your front yard. You want his bumper sticker on your car. If both were courting your sister, you would be pleased to have the Pharisee as a brother-in-law, but not the tax collector. So it's not so simple then as to why Jesus flips these values upside down in this parable. It's not easy to see why he commends the person we would condemn and he condemns the person we would commend. So let's look more closely. Both are in the temple. Jesus is not criticizing that, them for that. Both are praying. They're not criticized for that. In fact, in the previous parable, the opening part of the chapter that I didn't read this morning, Jesus has told another parable so that we might at all times pray and not lose heart. So it's commendable that they were both in the temple praying. But what we have to look at is the content of the prayers of these two men. The prayer of the Pharisee makes us uneasy. I thank you, it says in verse 11, that I am not like other men. And he begins to list these other people. And then at the end, it really makes us uncomfortable when he says, I especially thank you, I'm not like that tax collector back there in the back of the room. What upsets us is this man is conceited. There's no modesty. And we want him to be more modest because we don't like conceit. Don't you want your heroes to be modest? A certain degree to do that, to dish out praise to others rather than wanting to be the center of attention. If your team wins and it's a big honor, don't you want to see, even though you're excited about and delirious maybe with the celebration, don't you want to hear a few words of compliment to the other team or thanks to the fans or something like that? When Phil Mickelson won the Masters this past spring for the third time, we want, in the interview, we want to hear a little humility. You know, it's just my day. I want to thank my wife, my family, my, my, all the people that came out. This is a great crowd. I love this tournament. We don't want to hear, you know, I've done it now three times. I'm kind of tired of this place. I'm going to go where there's a real tournament that's a challenge with some real competitors. We would say, whoa, I, we don't really like that. You know, if you get a C on a test and someone else gets an A, you kind of want your friend, when they find out what you made, to say, well, man, the test, it was just strange. I just happened to read the right thing. You had studied, but you had just kind of missed that. I kind of knew I had. You'll do better next time. We don't want them to look over and say, how'd you get into this institution anyway? Did you, your, your parents know somebody here? I mean, did they, you get into some kind of special clause? If you asked me to go play tennis, which I hadn't played in years, and and after 6-0, 6-0, you beat me. You come up to the net, and, 
Uh, I kind of want to hear you say, well, you're obviously used to could play, I could tell, but you're just not out of practice. You know, if we play a few more times, you're going to be more competitive. I don't even want you to walk up and say, you know, Miller, I don't know what you were playing today, but it wasn't tennis, and do me a favor and never ask me again. <laughs> we want some humility. We don't like conceit, and this man is conceited. He's self-centered. He's arrogant. And often conceit is nothing more than just bad judgment. Isn't it? It's just bad judgment. I read or heard of a young woman who goes to her pastor. She said, Pastor, I have a besetting sin, and it's very annoying to me in the worship services, and I need your help. He said, What is it? She said, I come to church on Sunday, and I'm sitting there wanting to worship, and yet I can't help thinking that I'm the prettiest girl in the congregation. I know I shouldn't think that way, but I need some help. And he said, Mary, don't worry about it. In your case, it's not a sin. It's 